You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon today continues in Exodus. Our reading uh, will uh, be a portion of the text covered. The reading comes from chapter 12 and 13. You can follow along with me as I read. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses while they eat them, where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over the fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. He is risen. He is risen. I'm Chad, one of the pastors with King's Cross. But if you're a guest here with us, we, we did meet a number of folks yesterday. Hopefully they'll begin to connect. As Aaron uh, mentioned, we're so grateful for the opportunity we had to be in the community. But today, 
of all days, we are happy that you are here. It is a fantastic day to be with God's people. It is a fantastic day to be with God's people. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, conquering Satan, sin, and death once and for all. The pivotal event in Christianity, as Paul said, if Christ isn't resurrected, our faith is in vain. It's all hinging here. We're teaching through the book of Exodus, and today, intentionally, we are at the Passover. We're at the Passover, Passover, the 10th and final plague in Egypt. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'm not going to be reading the entire text, but the story comes from chapters 11 through chapter 13 and verse 16. Um, And if you don't have a Bible with you, we should have some free ones back there, and we'd be happy to let you have and take one with you. It's a gift from us. Um... My prayer is that we spend some time in this text, but that we all together ultimately see Christ more clearly. And I want to pray that together before we start, that his spirit would fill us and that we would be instructed by God today. Uh, if you would pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the truth that lays before us. We're so grateful for the opportunity to be together with God's people and to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, I pray that in this time we have together, you would open our eyes to see what we have not seen. Um, open up our hearts to, to, to know and love you more deeply and to know and love Christ more fully. Lord, that we'd be more like him. God, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So the, uh, the tenth plague is the culmination of God's redemptive work in Exodus, him freeing his people from slavery. See, where the previous nine plagues, the previous nine plagues we've been talking about, were something of a prologue, the tenth plague is the final climactic blow that frees Israel from the bonds of slavery in Egypt. This is the one. Matter of fact, if you, re- if you heard in the text, or what we see in the text in chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord tells Moses that I will bring one more plague. He knows this is the one. This has got one more. Don't worry. This is it, guys. Um, Numbers 33, uh, 4 tells us, and even later in this passage in Exodus, we see that God has been, and we talked about it last week, God has been casting judgment. He has been executing judgment against all the gods that Egypt worshipped, all of the idolatry. Egypt had some 2,000 or more gods that they held up on pedestals, that they venerated um, year in, year out, day by day, and worshipped as a people. And God is one by one, executing judgment on them and here in this final blow he brings that judgment straight to pharaoh's house in which pharaoh is the supreme human on earth being he is a deity incarnate as far as the the egyptians are concerned i want to do this first i want to set the stage and give a little context by reading 11 1 through 10 and talking a little bit through what's happening in this story okay in the story that's here context in place and then i want to talk about how this matters and connects with christ can we do that? Let's do that. Alexis, uh, I'm not Alexis. Hey, Alexis. Uh, Exodus, I don't even have Alexis. Uh, <laughs> Exodus 11, 1 through 10. All right, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh uh, and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. Wait, not only let you go from here, when he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Okay, he's telling you they're going to say go. It's They've 
Pharaoh's going from saying, no, you can't leave, no, you can't leave, no, you can't leave, I can't let you leave, to finally saying, get out of here. He's, he's not just saying, please, that's fine, sure, I'll let you. He says, get out, including all of his advisors. Now, announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. The Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. This is very odd. At least it sounds odd when you say that they're favored and that Moses himself was highly regarded. It's kind of like they've been just bringing devastation. Literally, the advisor said that can't you see these people are devastating our country? Why would they then say, hey, I love them? That's what it sounds like, highly regarded. But in reality, think of it more like fearfully reverent of them. Like, like they, it's almost like all of Egypt gets it and Pharaoh hasn't gotten there yet. That, that God says, go to your neighbors and ask for silver and gold items, and your neighbors will say, sure, anything to get you to go and get this to stop. And really, it's not that Israel is plundering Egypt. In some ways, it's payment for all this free labor they've been doing for hundreds of years. God is rewarding and, and helping to stabilize his people to give them means as they leave. So you see this. Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt. Verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. He tells God's people, about midnight I will go through Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstone as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Every firstborn. We're going complete devastation all the way to the cows. And this is important because cattle, livestock is venerated in some cultures. So he's trying to make it clear nobody's untouched. And it's Pharaoh on high sitting in the throne room. And it's the slave girl who is sitting by the grindstone. Everyone is impacted. Not a home in, Israel, in Egypt, we're told, is untouched. Then there will be great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is again making a statement to Egypt. This cry of anguish has no reason for us to believe that it's the death pangs, that they're going to be violent deaths, but imagine every household in Egypt wakes up, whether in the middle of the night or in the morning, and there's death in your home. That's the cry of anguish to all the land that Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again heard. But look at the distinction. In Israel, whether people or animal, not even a dog will snarl. Some commentators even say this is one more jab at the Egyptian gods, one more strike there was one God of death, Osiris, who had the head of a dog. And he would lead lives. He would lead, lead souls and navigate them through the course of death into the afterlife. And Moses is, is, is an example saying, not even a dog will snarl to Israel. Why? So that you'll know there's a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There's a difference. God's people and Egypt. All these officials of yours will then what? Come down to me and bow before me, saying, 
Get out. Again, get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will get out. And he went out from Pharaoh's presence fiercely angry. Moses is delivering this message to Pharaoh. He's telling him, all of your officials are going to come down to me, and they're going to bow before me. They have been worshiped. They've been following you. They've been venerating you. They've been holding you up in high esteem. They're going to come to me and beg me to leave. And it says he went out from Pharaoh's presence fiercely angry. The indication here is righteous anger. He is mad that Pharaoh let it get this far. Why do we have to be here? Why is it that you refuse to humble yourself before God? Why is it that God must bring judgment in totality for your people for there to be any movement whatsoever? What should have already happened? And then in verse 9, the Lord confirms to Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you now, so that my wonders, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. The final plague hits everybody. The final plague hits Pharaoh at home. The final plague is total and complete judgment, including livestock, all right? To the point that they say, get out. But central to this story, central to what's happening is simultaneously within Israel, the Passover. The Passover, the celebration of the Passover, and particularly the Passover lamb. The Jewish people celebrate this final event in the Passover where God passes over the homes of the people who had blood on their doorposts. The, the, the story goes, God's direction goes, that all of you will worship me by setting aside a lamb. You select the, the lamb on the 10th. You select him on the 10th of the day. He will be unblemished. You bring him into your household. You inspect him, make sure there's no blemishes, no scars, no nothing. He's perfect. He's a year old. He's a male. And then four days later, after he's been in, thoroughly inspected, after he's been tied up in the home to make sure nothing else happens to him, you will kill the lamb, cook the lamb, roast it, not boil it, roast it, not raw, and you'll have it as a meal, and as a worship to me. The blood from that lamb is spread on the doorpost. He says the blood should be on the doorpost, the lentils of the door. And on the lentils of the door, when death comes, when destruction comes, it will pass over the homes with the blood, your homes. So it's interesting together that God says judgment will come and nothing, no one in Israel will be harmed, but he also tells Israel there's a way to make sure that happens. As if, if, if Israel was not obedient, that there would be death in their home. And the important thing for us to recall here or to note here is that the Passover lamb for this meal, the one that God gives specific directions surrounding the selection and the preparation for, is connected in the New Testament to Christ. He is our Passover lamb. That in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. When he shows up at the river, John the Baptist says, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Christ is our Passover lamb. And what I wanna do is look at what are the things about the lamb in this context that connect to Christ? What is it that we see direct? Now, here's the deal. I could give you resources. You could just Google search this and find good resources. I mean, I'm not saying everything on Google is going to be a good resource, so maybe I should give you some specific links. But there's plenty of people talking about the number of connecting points between Christ and the Passover lamb. I, I listened to one guy's video. It took way too long. It was near 30 different ways he was making connections. We're not doing that this, okay, right now. We're not doing that. Uh, I want to highlight, I want to highlight three important thing, connection points, and then I want to talk about how God is putting his wonders on display how God is putting his wonders on display. 
in the Passover and in Christ. First thing is this, he's unblemished. He's an unblemished animal. He's taken into the house and he's examined. He says, you must have an unblemished animal, a year old male is what the direction says. You must have an unblemished animal, year old male. You may take him from either the sheep or the goats. The important thing about this is he's taken in the house and he's examined, he's checked over. Even the house is being cleaned up of any blemish. The leaven is removed from the house. In scripture, leaven is regularly connected with sin, okay? And so in this context, God is saying, take and clean out everything. Remove that from your house. Bring an unblemished lamb, one that is spotless. Tie him up in the house so he doesn't get damaged. Inspect him over four days and make sure he is clean before we get to the Passover meal. In the same way, Christ is without sin. He is unblemished. The same connection to Christ is he is the perfect lamb of God. He is the one that is spotless. He comes and lives the perfect life that we cannot live. And as the Passover lamb, he is unblemished and ready for the sacrifice. The second thing we see in the text about the Passover lamb is that it's a substitute for Israel's firstborn. The substitute for Israel's firstborn. In that same passage, it talks about that he's a one-year-old male. And the reason that's important, that he's a one-year-old male, is sometimes we might lose a little bit of understanding that in Scripture, the man, the male here, is, is a representative head, okay? It was a selected as a male because it represented and substituted for something else. In the New Testament, we see that Adam is the representative head for all mankind. In Adam, we all sin. In Adam, we are all guilty. In this case of Christ, though, for those in Christ, we all live. Do you see how that works? Now we have the... The goat here, the sheep here, is a substitute for all of Israel's firstborn. If God told them, he says, if you didn't have the, the blood on your doorpost, he would come in judgment. Rather, go ahead and get the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and we're going to pass over you. The substitute is the lamb. For us in Christ, he is our lamb. He is our substitute. The one-year-old is also because that lamb is in the prime of life. That lamb has just hit where he can start, he can start having uh, reproducing. He can start actually being useful. Uh, he's, he's, he's a prime spot. And some of you guys might think 20s is prime, okay? 30 is actually more prime, just so you know. I'm past that. I don't know how far, a little bit, okay? Starting to feel past my prime. 30 is technically more of a prime. And, and the under, interesting thing about 30 is that in Jewish law, that's when you can start to serve as a priest and representation for God's people. And so Jesus started his ministry at 30. Jesus was the man, perfect and unblemished, who represented God's people, the representative head for us. Christ reps us. In another way that he is substitute for firstborn, God also talks about Israel as his own firstborn. God talks about Israel as his firstborn regularly throughout Scripture. God lays claim in this entire passage to all the firstborn. He talks about the fact that when you get to the place you're going, the promised land, that whenever the firstborn comes, the firstborn baby is mine. All animals get sacrificed. The firstborn sons you redeem, meaning you offer a sacrifice in place of. God is talking and showing that you are my firstborn. God lays claims to all firstborn. And also Pharaoh was attacking babies and killing tons of firstborn. Wasn't it? He was, he was literally laying claim to life that God already had a claim on. And so in return, God strikes the firstborn of Egypt. God strikes down the firstborn of every household. And Christ, now we look at and see that he is God's first and only son. He is our substitute. 
He is the one who stands in our place. And the final thing, the final connection point, the final connection I want to talk about, at least here right now today, is that the lamb, the Passover lamb, covers everyone in one household marked by the blood. Covers everyone that's in one household marked and covered by the blood. Verses 3 and 13, we see that in chapter 12, where it says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the whole... I'm sorry, on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their family's families. One animal per family. So one animal per family. That's how it worked. They didn't get all one animal for the entire city. They didn't get one animal for the entire block. They did have for neighbors. If they had, you know, maybe it was you and your your husband just want to invite somebody else in, they would join households, but always for one household. And then in verse 13, it says this. The blood on the house where you are staying will be distinguished mark of your own. Will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you and destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, the important thing to connect here, the other particular connection point with Christ, is that in this story, we see one household of God is covered. One household of God, one family in Israel is covered by the blood of the Lamb. It doesn't go beyond that. But, but think about for us as God's people, there's only one household of God. And we are all covered by Christ's blood. In fact, Christ later in the New Testament says he is the door. And so that all that would enter here would find life. When God commanded the people, make the sacrifice, put the blood on the door, enter in and stay for the night, you will be covered and protected from judgment. Christ, in fact, protects all of God's people. He covers all with his sacrifice once and for all. So what does this have to do ultimately overall for us? What is present in this place? Well, it's interesting to me as I've read this that one of the things God is trying to do throughout this story regularly is put himself on display. He's trying to show and teach us something about himself. He is trying to show and teach us something in the previous passages about his power, his authority, his right to judge. And in this particular passage, what I want us to do is consider for a moment as the Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land. What are the wonders that are multiplying in the Passover lamb? What are God's wonders that are on display? And here's what I would say to you, that there is absolutely no salvation outside the love, justice, and grace of God in Christ, our Passover lamb. There is absolutely no salvation outside the love, justice, and grace of God in Christ, our Passover lamb. And there are four wonders, wonders of God. There are four wonders of God that are on display that we can see in the Passover lamb and we see in Christ. If you hear nothing else today, hear these four, that there are four wonders on display in this Passover lamb and in Christ. And the first is God's steadfast love for his people. God's steadfast love. You know, we often hear and you often see the criticism of the Old Testament God being angry, wrath-filled, destructive God who's out to kill. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he's got a flower in his ear and, and he's just loving people and all people are welcome. It's a big tent with Jesus. Thank goodness we got rid of the God of the Old Testament. But those who make that judgment don't look closely at the God of the Old Testament because he's the same one. 
He is absolutely the same God. He is, God is literally described as love. And when I say his steadfast love, I'm not just simply, that's like the best word we can get to capture the meaning of what this is. It's not just somebody who continues to love. It's like, God, you know, that my wife is continuing to love me faithfully throughout the years. Yes, and amen. And I pray that it would be as steadfast as God's love for me. But there is a deeper level, a commitment, a mercy that God has on his people. It's his commitment to his covenant people that is evident in the Passover. It's his commitment to love them. We see it all the way throughout this story. We see that he is on the mission of redeeming and saving people. He shows compassion. He hears their pain. He hears their cry, and he wants to redeem them. Exodus eleven six through 7, then there will be a cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again, but against all the Israelites, my people, not even a dog will snarl. He makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. It is, in fact, God's relentless commitment to redeem his people that is evident here in Scripture. He is a father who is rescuing his children. I have four kids, and I would potentially be violent with anyone who tried to take them. Not even potentially. If I saw you, it would, it would be definite. I've had dreams. I've had. I'm not repenting of those dreams. I don't know how. <laughs> okay. But I'm just saying, I, and I'm a man. Hey, anybody ever seen the movie Taken? laughter. I love it. I asked if it was okay to use this illustration. It was borderline. All right, so God is a father rescuing his children. If you've seen the character of Brian Mills in Taken, Liam, ne- Liam Neeson's character, okay, he was just fit for this role. He gets, he picks up the phone, his daughter is stolen. He doesn't know who it is. He just knows she's in trouble, knows that she's been taken by somebody who now has the phone, and he says this, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Anybody heard that one? I'll hear people repeat that back. And that's a man's passion and love for his daughter. Okay. He he wants to find her, and he is using his means that he can think to do it. We have a God of infinite means, a God of infinite love, patience, and kindness. And he is in pursuit of his people. He is for the family of God. And how do we see in Christ that he is also for the family of God? How do we see love? Well, we see it on the verse that is written in every end zone at every game. For God so loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. How do we know God loves us? He gave his son for us. I love you. I don't, I cannot imagine giving my son for you. But God lays down his life for us. If you struggle to feel God's love, if you ever imagine and feel guilty or shamed 
because the accuser wants to cripple us, because he wants to accuse God's people. He wants to hold you in a place where you can't, where you're paralyzed, where you can't believe that God could possibly love you. Ever ask that question? How could God love me? How could he know me and love me? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? What does Paul answer? No. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those under the blood of Christ, we're in his love. His heart and his love is set on us. It's the way he introduces himself to Moses. When he comes before Moses and Moses says, let me see some of your glory, the Lord passes before him and says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. He is a God that wants to forgive sin and loves his people. I can't expand, I can't expand on this story, but I love it. Jonah, like the worst prophet, just because of like his attitude. If you've learned that story ever, he, went, he gets swallowed by a rail, uh, a rail, a whale, really cute, right? You get a whale, you get Jonah in the kid's room, maybe a little mural on the wall. I, I kind of thought I learned it that he ran away because he was like nervous about sharing his faith. And then when he finally trusted God, he went back and went to Nineveh and it was all good. He wasn't scared about sharing his faith. He hated Nineveh so much. He hated the Assyrians so much. And there's so much baggage behind this uh, that, that you could go into about the way that they would slaughter and kill and harm people that probably were related to Jonah, okay? So he had some legitimate complaints, but God said go, and he hated them so much he didn't want to go tell them to repent. He didn't want to preach to them. And you know why he said that? He told God, he said, because I knew if they repented, you'd forgive them, and I didn't want that. He was mad because God forgave them. Again, worst prophet. Well known. But how t- he j- that's how loving God is even in the Old Testament. But here's the thing we have to remember is the, the rest of that passage in Exodus 34. He prevents, presents himself to Moses and he goes on to say this, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Here's what you have to see in the cross. You see in the Passover that God is steadfast love for his people, but he is also just. He has righteous judgment. See, his pure steadfast love for his people requires that he is just. Do you see that? Can you really truly fully love someone and not desire justice? Can you do that? Can you be with, being okay with whatever people want to do with their life is not love. I love my kids. I do not let them stick paper clips into electrical sockets. It harms them. I have different, 
I have a different policy with animals. If they want to chew on a, on a wire, I'll be like, well, they'll learn. But my kids, I love them. And I don't want them to harm themselves. Love seeks justice. Can, in, in, in this story, God is executing judgment on idolatry. He's executing judgment on all of Egypt. But what's important not to miss here is that in addition to the judgment on, Israel, on Egypt, he's also executing judgment towards Israel. Israel, we're told, is guilty of idolatry themselves. They have gone after Egypt's idols. And you might ask me, well, these are children often that are being killed, the firstborn. What about these innocent children being killed? Well, all of Egypt was guilty. This is, this is a hard thing to consider, but the truth is there is God does not take the life of any innocent person. We are all guilty before him. All of Egypt was guilty before him. All of Egypt participated in the harming of Israel. All of them persecuted it. All of them oppressed them. All of them helped kill their babies. He recruited entire Egypt. So judgment came to all. And we fall under the same flag. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And inevitably, the wages of our sin, the punishment, the responsibility, the requirement for sin is death. And the wrath of God, that's a word that gets a bad rap. Doesn't land well. People don't like wrath. Ugh, can he just love people? He does. How could God look at the state of our world, love it, and not be angry? How? How could God look at how we treat one another? How self-centered are we? Even when we do good things, how often are your motives pure? Listen, you might say, I'm not that bad. But when we minimize our guilt, we don't understand God's holiness. That before him, we all fall short and we need to be humble to recognize our place before a holy God. Our world is absolutely filled with, this, with injustice and God will make all things right. He brings final judgment. He executes justice. And what we see in the Passover is he's executing judgment on Egypt. But in Christ, God is also able to not only execute justice, but he's also able to be the justifier. The justifier. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. That in Christ, he could judge sin as Christ took it on our behalf. But also take it from us so that he could justify us before him. Do we see that? Do we see that Christ now taking our own guilt removes it from us so that God can justify him, just justify us as his children and at the same time punish the sin that we are guilty of. When Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, it's interesting to note, he talks about the bread and he talks about the cup. He breaks the bread and says, this is my body. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood. They get the sweet cup of wine, but guess what he doesn't talk about in the Passover is the bitter herbs. Because Christ takes the full wrath of God on himself and he doesn't give it to us. 
And the reason he does that is so that we might experience the third wonder in this story, and that's his immeasurable riches of his grace, the riches of God's grace. Exodus 20 tells us, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 20 tells us that Israel was also guilty of idolatry. Moses started out by doubting and pushing back against God. Israel doubted and kept turning back to Pharaoh and Egypt's gods, but God made a way to save them. This 10th plague is all God. Aaron and Moses take a seat. Do you see that? Before he says, raise your staff, put it here, put it over there. This time he says, go in the house and eat a lamb. I'm doing this. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land, both people and animals. I am the Lord and I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And if you have any doubts whatsoever in God's graciousness for you, his rich grace should bring hope for all your doubts. That the Passover command says nothing at all. Notice this, the Passover command he gives says, the lamb should be without blemish. He says, clean the leaven out of your house. But guess what it never says a thing about? The people and their blemishes. They don't have to be perfect. They just have to trust God and do what he says. Just trust him, put the blood on the doorpost, and you're covered. Everyone in the household under the blood was protected. Everyone in God's house under the blood of Christ who trusts in him is covered and is saved from certain death. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 reads this. But God, who is rich in mercy, that same word is that steadfast love. Because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And I love verse 7 of chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verse 7. There's, but God is a fantastic portion of scripture here. I had one seminary professor say this. He said, there are some great buts in the Bible, and this is the best one. Okay, just telling you. He said it. That's why. But, but God, who is rich in mercy. Seven, though, is our hope. Why? Why did God do this? Why did he make us alive? Why did he save us by grace? Why did he raise us up and seat us with him in the heavens? So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. If God's immeasurable riches are to be on display in his kindness towards us, how kind can an infinite God be? that he would want to be kind to me so that he could put on display his grace. I, I warrant a ton of grace. In this sermon alone, I probably made some terrible illustrations that I have to reconsider. I have a bad attitude towards my kids and my spouse. I don't like how something turns out and I might just not respond well. I don't have Jesus stickers on my car because I don't know what I might say through a window to somebody when they cut me off. That's not true. I won't do that. But I'm just saying, most people shouldn't have a Jesus fish on their car because of the way they drive. 
man, I had, oh, that, I, I had that once happen. Someone came to my house, and I had to have a call. I had to talk with him because he had a Christian fish on his business card, and he was, he did terribly immoral business with me. It was awful. I said, don't come back, but man, this is not good. But do any of us deserve that grace? That he would want to pour that out on us? He wants to display his mercy and grace in Christ. If you wrestle at all, if the accuser stands ready to accuse you of guilt, if he says there's no way God could ever forgive you for this, if you wrestle with some desire to obey like any of us do, anyone here can raise their hand and say, I obey God perfectly, then you just lied. I'm just telling you. If you wrestle with a desire, why do I not obey you? Why do I not? Paul wrestled with the same exact thing. Remember this, there is more mercy and more grace in Christ than there could ever be sin in us. And this is ultimately what we see finally in the Passover and fulfilled in Christ, God's absolute power to save. His absolute power to save. Exodus 13, 16 says, Let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead. For the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. All of the, the old ancient kings, Pharaohs included, wanted, talked about their great powers and the moves they made and the armies and the enemies they conquered by the strength of their hand. But the Lord is the one who holds the real strength. And in it, he brings out his people from Egypt. How could he pull this off? There was doubts in Israel. They doubted. They turned back to Pharaoh, right? They doubted that it could happen because when they were crushed, when they were pressed, they immediately said, this is too uncomfortable. How, what are you going to do? I don't know how you're going to manage this. How was he going to pull off both saving his people from their guilt and saving them from bondage in Israel, in Egypt? God's power is on display. When he finishes, Egypt is begging them to leave. He is begging them to go. God tells them, have your sandals on and be dressed, ready to go. Eat fast, because guess what? You're going to have to move as soon as I'm done. I will free my people absolutely, and you will be freed completely, and you will be freed quickly. In fact, it reads in the text that there was a mixed crowd of people that went with God's people. A mixed crowd that not only were Israel themselves saved, but there were some of the surrounding community that saw what God did and said, I'm going with you. Talking about like an evangelistic work there. God was just working in power in, in Egypt. And they said, can we come with your God? A mixed crowd leaves. And you might ask me this. Okay, why doesn't God do miracles anymore? Okay. Do, I'll tell you, yesterday was a little bit of a miracle. If you don't know about the weather when we were going to do this event, I'll just point this out. It was up till the morning of saying 80%, 90% rain, the like in the very middle of the event we were trying to do. Okay? Prayed, 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 prayed. It, Raleigh's weather changed like it does. All of a sudden, it was like an hour before, and it said, sun. And I'm like, what? what's going on? It was up to the moment we were starting. But, but you might say, okay, you could say uh, Raleigh weather changes on, on a, uh, you know, a dime anyway. That's, how could we say that's God? Why doesn't he do things like, like this, dropping hail, turning to blood? Here, let's be honest, let's be truthful. God has given us all we need to see. And the truth is, just like Pharaoh refused to give in, it's not going to change hearts and minds. He, is, he has given 
everything we need to know about him and his creation. That's what we're told. But I would argue he still does miracles. If I had someone, let's just say we had a dead body in here, okay? We'd be uncomfortable. But there's a dead man sitting here. You all checked him out. You knew it was dead. It, it's a funeral service. Man's been dead like Lazarus for multiple days. He stinketh, right? That's what it says in Scripture. Just saying. It's evident. It's clear. No questions. And I come up here and say, by the power of God, come to life. He stands up, walks out of the room. Would that, grant be, that, would that be a miracle to you? God, Scripture tells us God does that every day by making dead men and women alive. He takes a heart of stone that is enemies to the cross of Christ, that hate God, hate what he has, and makes them into his family. I would argue the most powerful, greatest miracle in changing a dead person to a life, a live person in Christ happens every day. God is doing that work. He does it here. He does it in Raleigh, in North Carolina. He does it around the world every day. And by God's grace, we might see and pray that he does it in our midst. That he would bring dead men and women to life. God's righteous judgment and wrath, the riches of his grace, and his steadfast love toward us are on full display in, the Christ, in Christ on the cross. God's righteous judgment and wrath, the riches of his grace and steadfast love toward us are on full display in Christ on the cross. It says as much in Scripture that God demonstrates his love towards us in Christ. How? That while we were yet sinners, while we were guilty, while we were dead in our sin, Christ died for us. There's nothing new you do today that he didn't know was coming. And yet he chooses to place his love on you. The tenth plague is the culmination of God's redemptive work in Exodus. Where the previous nine plagues were something of a prologue, the tenth plague is the final climactic blow that frees Israel from the bonds of slavery in Egypt. The death and resurrection of Christ, though, is the culmination of God's power to save his people. While God has always and continues to be at work, the resurrection is the final climactic blow against Satan, sin, and death that frees his people from guilt and bondage of slavery once and for all. Believer, if you are in Christ, you are no longer slaves in bondage to sin. You no longer need to be crippled by guilt and shame. We celebrate the resurrection of Christ because the work is finished. His sacrifice is complete. Notice this, when the Passover lamb is finished, do you know what they're not supposed to do the next day? They can't take any leftovers. They can't leave the house. They burn it. I would argue this. Christ's sacrifice is complete once and for all. We don't need a redo. We don't need a little bit more tomorrow. It doesn't change. Hebrews 10, 11 through 13 says that every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifice time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You sit down when the job is done. Christ's work is complete, and we celebrate that.
Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you that the work is complete in Christ. Thank you that we can celebrate the resurrection from the dead because we know that in him we are covered, that our sin is forgiven, and that your immeasurable riches of your grace are poured out on us as your people. God, fill us with your love and kindness and remind us every day. Remind us afresh that your mercies are new every morning and that your forgiveness is full and that as we seek to obey you, God, you, you, you promise to be with us as your people. We love you, we thank you, and we ask you to make us more like Christ. And we ask all this in his name, amen.